Is it true that in this day and age, women are not allowed to hold higher positions in the church? To me, this seems a little sexist and rudimentary. I would like to know where this fits in with this church and how it came to be. Uh, I just read an incredible book about why Christianity went from like a hundred people when Jesus went back into heaven to become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire in just a few centuries. There was a sociologist who wrote a book trying to figure out like why, why was Christianity so popular so fast? Was it the, the message of God's love compared to the other gods of the Greeks and Romans? And he explored all these angles and do you know what one of his top answers was, one of his theories? That Jesus Christ and his followers loved women a hundred times more than the culture around them. In Greek and Roman culture, a woman could not cheat on her husband. But a man was expected to cheat on his wife. There's some uh, early Roman writers who said, these Christians say it's wrong for a man to visit a prostitute. They are so strict. Because <laughs> the Bible says, no, husbands, be faithful to your wives. Be like Jesus to your wives. Like, if you care about your own body, then care about your wife. Don't don't run around on her. Don't be unfaithful to her. Love her with the supreme example that Jesus set for you. The Bible says in Galatians 3 verse 28, in Jesus, there's not like a men and women distinction. We are all one through faith in him. In fact, if you look at Jesus, you know, all the men are there, the Pharisees with the stones, the stone that adulterous woman. You remember the story? And Jesus stands up for her, a woman, And when he's going to Jerusalem, he enjoys the hospitality of his friends Mary and Martha. He knows them by name and he loves them dearly. And Mary Magdalene, some of you know, is one of the closest followers of Jesus in the whole Bible. Like when when the early uh, people in the first and second century read these stories in the Bible, they said, this faith loves women so much. Like Jewish people dismissed the testimony of women The Bible written by Jewish men has Mary being the first witness of the resurrected Jesus. Like they read things like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a a man's body does not belong to himself, it also belongs to his wife. And people said, what? (laughs) They read things like uh, Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And they said, are you serious? Right, so in those days, the Christian love for women was so, it, it might have been one of the leading factors of the explosion numerically of the Christian church. But that's not what this question asked, is it? <laughs> In this day and age, is there any distinction? Um, I actually preached a four-week sermon, <laughs> are you sensing a theme here? A four-week sermon series called God and Gender a couple years ago. You should track down my complete answer to that question. Um, Let me summarize it this way. There are some people who say that in the Bible, there is no distinction in any way between men and women. Man can be a pastor, a woman can be a pastor. Men can be leading the church, women can be leading the church. It doesn't matter. That's called egalitarianism, if you want a big word. There's another group of people that says, no, the Bible actually does make a distinction. There's a high love for men and women, but there are passages that seem to say, you know, some things yes and some things no. That position is called complementarianism. 
Men and women complement each other. There's, there's a difference, but they're complementary. So egalitarianism, complementarianism, which one is right? If you ask me, this one. Write down these references if you want. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, I do not permit, let me find it word for word. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. To me, that seems like a distinction. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, talking about family. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. That sounds like a, a distinction to me. Um, you should read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, First um, Peter chapter 3, the qualifications for a pastor in Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3. I, in all these passages, I see a distinction that the Bible is making between the two. Not a, we're better and you're lesser, but a complementarian position that I think goes through a lot of the New Testament writings. Last example before this bums you out. I know this is hard in uh, 2020s America. Um, think of Jesus. Actually, just let me speak to the women in the house right now. Imagine if you're with Jesus. And Jesus has chosen his 12 apostles and you quickly notice something about them. Matthew, Thomas, John, James, the first of two, Philip, Peter, Andrew, and Bartholomew, the other James, Zealous Simon, Judas, Thaddeus. They're all dudes. And they're not all dudes who are smarter than me. <laughs> right? Peter opens his mouth and he says something dumb. Like, why? Well, is Jesus sexist? And then you follow Jesus and you find out he is not. No one has loved you like Jesus. No one pays attention to your words like Jesus. No one cares as much about your opinion as Jesus. You're, you're not a doormat. You're not second rate. He, he says, look at this woman. I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. He says, let those of you who are without sin cast the first stone at this woman. He, he could have appeared to James or John the, night, the day he rose from the dead. Instead, he appears to Mary and makes her the first witness of the greatest day in human history. Follow Jesus and you find a distinction, but you do not feel less than or unloved. And this is what we're trying to do today. It ain't easy. I'll tell you what's easy. Uh, it's easy for men to be jerks and for women to be critics. That's easy. I'm the man. I'm the pastor. J just listen to me. Ladies, keep your questions aside. No, to actually listen to women, engage with women, understand where women are coming from. That's the hard work of leadership. And it's pretty easy if you're, if you're not one of the leaders to be, to be critical, to throw out these passages on respect your husband and submission to church authorities. Like This is not an easy teaching. But God knows it's biblical and it's beautiful. So, women are not allowed to hold higher positions in the church. In a way, I think that's true. Is it sexist and rudimentary? Only if Jesus is sexist? I would like to know where this fits in with the church and how it came to be. It came from the Old and New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, 14, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Genesis 2, the creation of Adam and Eve, and many other passages.
In this modern day area, era, what are your views about people living together and then requesting this church to marry them? That's a great question. Um, I wrestle with this. So our pastors wrestle with this dozens of times a year because if a couple is not living together before marriage, they are very weird. Right? Maybe two generations ago that, that would have been abnormal and socially unacceptable but no longer. Now it's you know, the, the Christian kids and grandkids, it's, it's lots of you. Um, question is, what are, what are my views about people living together? Let's tackle that first. Um, what Bible passage says, thou shalt not live together? There isn't one. So we've got to be really careful about implications and assumptions and adding things to the Bible. That's not a good thing to do. But I will say this. What does the Bible say about having sex outside of marriage? A lot. It's a passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that says, Do not be deceived. It's not just the drunkards and the slanderers and the swindlers and men who have sex with men that might be in trouble. The first thing on the list is, Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, so what's moral sexually to God it's two people enjoying the great good gift of sex, that's what it is, after they've made this lifelong commitment publicly in front of God and in front of witnesses. Now, if I was you, let's say you're dating someone, and I hear that passage, I'm thinking, I don't want to mess with that. Like, I don't want to take that command lightly. Pretty serious language. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So, I know about your relationship but I like my wife. She kind of likes me back. And living in the same house, like, you, you see each other a lot. <laughs> You're in the same bed. She's changing. She's showering. Like, those are the moments where a dude's like, hey. <laughs> right? And that's good. That's, that's sexual attraction. That, that's a gift from God. And you know, sometimes when, when the attraction goes and the desire goes, it, it's hard to say no in those moments. So you have to ask yourself a big, big question. Not, where's the Bible passage that says don't? The honest question every Christian has to answer is, am I able to live in that situation without crossing the biblical line? Right? And, and you got to be honest. I've actually found in counseling the most effective thing to do, uh, and this can work with men or women, but especially you ask guys this, like, dude, just be honest with me. Is it happening? And no dude has ever said to me, no, like not even close, Pastor. <laughs> like it, it just is. Sexual attraction is, is often very magnetic. And when you get two magnets close enough to each other, they end up together. So I would say, even though it's difficult, super inconvenient, 99% of couples that I've met have options. You can crash with a friend, you can stay with your parents. And trust me, one day, if God blesses you with children, 
and you say to them, you know, mommy and daddy were living together and then we went to this church service one time and the pastor made us think and it cost us a few grand in rent and I didn't sleep over but I you know, drove back to my parents' house at night. You will never regret doing the hard thing for the truth of God's word. Never. So, if that's your situation, if you've crossed that line, I'd encourage you to repent, come to Jesus. There is forgiveness for sexual sin. And as 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, flee. Run from sexual temptation. It's strong. Keep far away from that line. What about requesting this church to marry them? We don't got time for that. <laughs> very, very complicated. You know, what do you expect out of a wedding? Do both people have to be repentant? What if this is their way of like fixing the situation? Like, okay, okay, we are living together, but we want to be married. We love each other. Can we do that soon? We do that all the time at church. Um, if two people say, hey, we want God to bless our wedding, but we're just living in this and you're not going to change this and here's the date, woo, then I got some issues, right? Don't, don't stand up front and say you love Jesus and you want him to bless you if you don't want him to bless you right now. So every couple is different. Every situation is different. If you grew up and you've been hearing this for 25 years and now you're stiffing God and his word, no, I got issues with that. If you're brand new to church, you're like, what? I didn't know the Bible said that. I'm going to be patient with you. So every couple's different. But I would encourage you, like I've done a lot of things wrong in my life. Waiting to live with Kim until we were married is one of the things we did right. So you can do it. There's grace and mercy and a lot of people who want to help you. How do we break the stereotype of judgmental Christians? <laughs> Ever met a judgmental Christian before? Um, I think my shortest answer to this question is we never entirely will. Because Christians are supposed to be like Christ and guess what Jesus Christ did all the time? He judged. Jesus had some really powerful things to say about his followers and their judgment. So in Matthew chapter 7, um, some people think this is the Bible passage that the world knows better than any other these days. Jesus said, verse 1, Matthew 7, Do not judge or you too will be judged. To which the world says, you see, Christians are not supposed to judge people. We're not supposed to call people out for their lifestyles. We're not supposed to say someone's going to hell or someone's living in sin. Jesus himself said, quote, do not judge. But you know this about the Bible? You, you can't just take one passage. You got to keep reading. Here's what he said next. For, here's his explanation, verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you used, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is saying, hey, just know before you judge someone, the standard you use, the Bible, that's the same standard that's going to judge you. Right? So if you're saying to someone, well, you're breaking this commandment, you, you need to repent, but you're breaking another commandment in the same book and you're not repenting, that's an issue with Jesus. And he says, don't judge in that case. And here's the proof of that interpretation, verse 3. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
pretty funny when you think about it, right? <laughs> like a two-by-four stuck in your face. Like, oh, I think there's a little, little speck of something over there. He says, no, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites, here's the big idea, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You catch that? Like, should we care about the sins of other people, the specks of sin in their lives? Yes. Should we eventually try to remove that speck, address that speck, talk to our friends, our, our fellow Christians, our neighbors, our children about their sin? Yes, Jesus says, you should, but not first. First, he says, take the plank out of your own eye. So, first look in the mirror, repent of your sins, take your behavior seriously, don't, don't pick and choose and judge them for sin A when you're living in sin B. But, assuming you're coming humbly to Jesus, saying, I repent of my sins, change me, I'm struggling, but I want to follow your ways, then you are perfectly equipped, prepared, and biblically ready to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, we live in a culture where just people hate being judged. And we're just looking for any excuse to avoid changing our own behavior. So we love to misquote Jesus and say, you're being a judgmental Christian. Um, sometimes, yeah. Just like Jesus. <laughs> so, want to break the stereotypes? Be the most humble, repentant person that your friends know and then in love say, I love you. Can we talk about this? And you'll be just like Jesus. Are things of self-pleasure, such as masturbating, harmful to the body since you are the temple of God? Oh, there's like three pastors in the house today. Does anyone want to help me out here? All right. It's a good question, actually. Thank you. Um, takes courage. Uh, do you know James Dobson? He's like the uh, kind of family Christian guy for many years. He had a, a quote years ago that was, 99% of men masturbate and the other 1% is lying about it. <laughs> Not entirely true, but his point was, it's kind of a conservative Christian voice. Like, it's something we don't talk about, but there's something that happens. It's not just men. You know, sexual desire is, is strong. Not everyone is married with a willing sexual partner every moment that, that they desire it. So masturbation is a thing. Now, here's the question. Is that harmful to the body since you are the temple of God? Um, I think that reference comes from 1 Corinthians 6. Um, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. Do not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, it's masturbation breaking this idea that you are the temple of God. Um, let's break this down. Uh, where in the Bible is masturbation mentioned? Yeah, never. Um, phrase doesn't come up. It's not alluded to a single time. Um, what do we know, though? From Matthew chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we know that sexual immorality, even with the eyes in the mind, breaks God's desire for our sexuality. So, a lot of the times a person is fantasizing, they're looking at pornography, they're doing something with their eyes or their mind that they shouldn't and then they masturbate with their body. There's a connection there. So is, is that wrong? The answer would be yes. It's violating God's design for marriage 
sexuality and our body. Um, <laughs> actually, <laughs> some of you don't know this. The very first um, small group that I ever hosted, we gathered a whole bunch of uh, people in our living room and a lot of people were just brand, brand new to Christianity, super honest and awesome. First question was, Pastor, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Second question was, Pastor, what does the Bible say about masturbation? <laughs> like on the first night, too. So I'm looking at my wife like, all right, this is, this is happening. So I answered the question, we all, you know, lust is wrong in Matthew chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the person followed up and said, well, what if you're, what if you're not thinking thoughts like that? You know, just a physical thing. I, I think the, um, the woman asked, like, what if I'm just like staring at a tree out the window? To which I said, well, that's concerning. <laughs> so, I thought a bunch about this and, and here's what I think. I, you know, I don't want to add rules, so I'm not going to just categorically say every time is sinful. But here's what I think is true. Um, I think that God, let's just assume uh, we're talking about a married couple for a second. I think that God put this sexual drive in us in part to help us self, selflessly serve our spouse. Right? So let's say I'm attracted to Kim. I want to have sex with her. If I just come up and say, hey, huh? She's going to be like, oh, like I, got, I got a bunch of stuff to do and I got to take care of this. I'm going to put all the dishes away and stuff. Like, okay. If I want to connect with her emotionally, physically, to becoming one flesh, I have to humble myself, selflessly serve her, right? Got to take her out on a date. Got to romance her. Got to love her. Got to listen to her problems. Like, you got you to connect in more than just a physical way, right? But if I take that, that drive that's within me and I take it other places, even, let's say, mindlessly masturbating, like, then that kind of drive that God has put within me, well, I don't have it anymore, so let's just let her do her thing. I'm good. I'm going to read a book or something. So I think there's a connection between the way we serve each other and love each other in marriage and the drive that God has put within us. Now, let's say you're single. Like, what about then? I think it's just very, very dangerous to start developing a sexuality in a way that is disconnected from the person that will share it with you. Right? I know very, very few people who have walked like a holy road that they wouldn't be embarrassed to talk about publicly? Okay, here's, here's what I did with masturbation, and yeah, I'm not ashamed of that. God's cool. Grandma, have I told you about it? Right? I'd be like, uh... <laughs> I think, it's the, you know, there's an old Shakespeare line, me thinks thou protesteth too much. Right? If you're looking for some path, it's difficult. I get it. Lots of us get it. But should we resist that? Probably to honor God with our bodies. I think so. I'm not going to add a page to the scripture, but um, by the way, this is something we can talk about. Okay. Thanks for having the courage to be here and not blush too much. If it's happening in the church, we should talk about it in the church. Because if we don't talk about it in the church, no one gets help or encouragement or truth or grace or forgiveness. So please, please, please be the next generation here at our church that helps questions like this be asked and answered with open Bibles and open hearts. Why were miracles so big in Jesus' day and not as big and crazy now? Mm. Yeah, can you imagine it? Jesus shows up, 
Pastor Michael always says he crashes every funeral he goes to. <laughs> Get up. Uh, we only got a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, Jesus. There's 5,000 men here. Boom. <laughs> like, that would have been so, so amazing to see. Are, are you kind of jealous sometimes of what 2,000 years ago people saw? Blind people seeing, paralytics for 38 years walking, demons being cast out. Do you kind of wish you lived 2,000 years ago? I don't. I mean, that would have been sweet. But, but think of that. For three years, I mean, even if you were part of Jesus' inner circle, one of his apostles, you saw a couple dozen miracles. But, but you know what most of those men did not have? A copy of this. These days, we walk around with the entire word of God in our pockets. And I think when you get to heaven, Peter's going to say, What? <laughs> oh my God. Like we, we tried to remember the things that Jesus, they were all written down for you. So I, I think we have to be careful of like being jealous of people who lived 2,000 years ago. Not only do we have air conditioning, Wi-Fi, and FaceTime. <laughs> we have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. We have Acts and Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We, we had all these things that those witnesses of the miracles did not have. And I actually think that's my answer to the question. Why did Jesus do so many miracles then? Well, the point of the miracles was to get people to listen to his word. Read the Gospel of John. Jesus said, these are signs to let you know that I'm not making this up. I actually came from heaven. I'm the Son of God. And unless I do something big, you won't believe me. But now we have a, a better word. Something we can open every single day and read, find our faith and confidence in. I'm going to write down a passage to prove this. Uh, go to 2 Peter. I love this. Uh, chapter 1. Peter said, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So, right, we saw the miracles. Verse 19. And we also have the message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. He's like, okay, you want something even more reliable? You want something you can depend on, have with you always? You don't need a miracle. You got the message. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Mike. Are you aware of the incredible amount of resources that are waiting to help you grow in your faith? We here at Time of Grace have produced a weekly TV program, daily written devotions, video devotions, podcasts, more podcasts, even more podcasts. There's blogs, other blogs, even more blogs. We've written books, big books, small books, all kinds of books because we want to help you as best we can to stay connected to this glorious God that we worship together. If you're interested in learning more, just go to timeofgrace.org to sign up for our daily email.